You are listening to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. We talk about intersectionality a lot these days, but what does it really mean to combine our analysis of race, class, and gender? While we know women from all walks of life suffer male violence, how are working class women and women of color impacted particularly? What is women's role in white supremacy, if any? And, moreover, why has the left failed to effectively analyze and challenge sex-based oppression and male violence, despite its interest in ending systems of oppression and building an equitable, just society? I spoke with Daisy Clur, a collective member at Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter and the founder of South Asian Women Against Male Violence, about these issues and more over the phone from her home in Vancouver. Here is that interview. Due to the racist violence in in Charlottesville and a general rise in white nationalist activity in the U.S., conversations around racism have been taking place across America. Um, What's been discussed less, though, from my perspective anyway, is the role that misogyny plays in all this. How do you see white supremacy and male supremacy as connected? Well, first of all, we know that the driver, James Alex, uh, in Charlottesville had a previous uh, assault charges on his mother. So there is a direct link in that case between his misogynistic behavior and racism. Um, He definitely displayed that he was a misogynist and a white supremacist. Um, But I think really, like in a larger discussion of male supremacy and white supremacy, they're premised on very similar ideas um, that women and non-whites are inferior, and at least this is their, they use this ideology to justify the unequal power relations between men and women, between whites and non-whites. And they use this justification to steal Indigenous lands, to hoard power, and there's a refusal to share resources or power or wealth. So in my mind, they fit well together, white supremacy and male supremacy. I mean, combined, they serve as a lethal mix when it comes to Indigenous women and women of colour. Now there are two forces holding women down. And then if you add class, there's three forces holding women down. Um, The individual white guy is one power, but his power is reinforced by every institution because all the power structures are predominantly run by rich men, rich white men. So this increases the relationship between the two are, are they're easy bedfellows in my mind. And if you think about how women are described in derogatory ways and how people of color are described, it's almost exactly the same. We're over-emotional, we're not rational, we're dirty, we're polluted, we're unclean, not sophisticated, ruled by our emotions, not capable of rational thought, hysterical. So you could be describing women or people of color when those descriptions are being used. So in my mind, white supremacy and male supremacy are easy, easy bedfellows, and they share the same ideology. And basically it's used to justify and maintain men's unearned power and their unearned privilege. On top of that, if you look at male violence against women as an enforcer of women's inequality, so the message you get through violence against women is 
that you stay in your place. You're meant to be kept down and don't try and get up. And there's very grave consequences for women, including death, if they overstep themselves, which is very similar to what's going on in America. Um, and to the same extent here, I think, with Indigenous people, if you think about uh, the attacks from white supremacists, but also the attacks from the police or the state, uh, there's a very similar message there. Now, I'm, I'm interested in talking about the role that women play in the alt-right. Um, it, it does appear to be a uh, movement that's led by men, by white men. But what, you know, do you think that women have any responsibility in terms of the rise of white nationalism in the U.S.? Well, there's a few ways around around this. I think one is the, the straightforward answer is yes. Um, every person is responsible for the decisions they make. And obviously women who are joining these movements have a responsibility. But I think somehow looking at the women, I see it more as uh, how I see women being fronted in the prostitution fight. So uh, when you see the pro-sex industry and the pro-pimp industry using women as their spokespeople, propping up women as their spokespeople, I think that really we have to analyze it as men still running the show. Uh, they're still the ones that are benefiting from prostitution, benefiting from everything that happens with the sex industry. And it's true of the alt-right. Yes, the women can be spokespeople. Yes, they have some agency. But let's not fool ourselves as who's really running the show, and that's white men. I think the other thing that happens when we discuss what the role of women is in these things is it reminds me of uh, when you're talking to somebody who's usually playing the devil's advocate, which is my serious pet peeve of mine. Lots of white guys do this with me. But, um, you know, women oppress too. Uh, it reminds me of this kind of age-old question, do women have a responsibility in the oppression of women, people of color, etc.? and they usually bring up Mar Margaret Thatcher or Hillary Clinton. Um, but since I don't believe in biological determinism, I don't believe that your women are born naturally more kind or, or less oppressive, um, I, of course they can play a role in the oppression of others, but it's limited to the fact that they too are oppressed. So they're not on top of the hierarchy when we talk about gender and then women of color when we talk about the race hierarchy. Men still rule the world. So, you know, feminism is a theory and a practice. You're not born into feminism. It's a political commitment to the liberation of women. Um, obviously, those women in the alt-right and in the white nationalist groups clearly don't prescribe to it and should be held accountable for their decisions. But I don't necessarily think when we talk about women's role, you know, I kind of think of Dworkin, you know, she said, you don't get to just fight on behalf of the women you like, you fight on all women's liberation. So, you know, I'm still fighting for them as well. Um, and a feminist analysis that we have to apply is who's got the power. And it's still the men who are running the show, in my opinion. And eventually those same men in the alt-right will betray their own women. They beat their, they beat their wives um, you know, because there is no race or class of men that don't perpetuate violence against women. And they're facing an oppression as well. Mm -hmm. The trouble with political conversations around both racism and misogyny are that we often center the U.S. in those conversations, mm -hmm. um, you know, which makes sense because 
the U.S. dominates media, I mean, in North America especially, but, you know, everywhere, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's frustrating because Canada is different in some ways. And, you know, Canada has its own struggles, you know, around racism and things mm-hmm. like that. How have you seen racism and sexism intersect and play out in Canada specifically? You know, what are some issues that are specific to Canada that you'd like to see discussed more in public discourse? Well, I think the starkest difference in the Canadian context is um, the relationship between Aboriginal people, uh, in particular Aboriginal women. Uh, In the U.S., largely the Aboriginal populations were decimated far more greatly than in Canada. And there's an uprising happening there as well, but the uprising here is phenomenal. the starkest example is the mistreatment of Indigenous women. Uh, you know, we know that Indigenous women are eight times more likely to be murdered than non-Indigenous women. And the impunity in which men can execute that violence is breathtakingly horrific. I mean, if we look at some examples like the Cindy Gladue example of the Aboriginal women, um, I think in Alberta, who was killed by a John and... The, the level of violence that he used was shocking, but also the response from the state institution. So the police immediately believed the man when he said uh, that he, you know, he just found her there. He doesn't really know what happened. They didn't even, like, hold him as a suspect until the autopsy report. And then how the criminal justice system spoke of her as a prostituted woman, uh, as an Aboriginal woman. I think that was one of the starkest examples uh, that I could see that we have to reconcile with uh, as Canadians. And I do think that there is some smugness that goes on uh, with Canadians to think that we're so much better than our American counterparts And we have lots of racist policies. Um, If we look at immigration, uh, if we look at, you know, who's incarcerated in our jails is the same. It's it's Aboriginal people and people of color. And in the women's prisons, it's Aboriginal women and women of color that are predominantly filling our, our jails. So we are in no way much better than the states. I mean, obviously, the Canadian Charter is something that, you know, we uphold as something that we're proud of and that there's a lot of promise in it. And uh, that's not exactly the same for the Americans. But I think that uh, mostly if we look at the experience of Indigenous people, and in particular Indigenous women, that's the the starkest difference. In Canada, the investigation into the missing and murdered Indigenous girls and women has been ongoing. Um, Have you seen progress in terms of the way the Canadian government and Canadian media are approaching that issue? You know, what are your, what are your thoughts on the inquiry so far? Well, first, I want to acknowledge that the only reason that there is even an inquiry is because of the tireless efforts of Indigenous women fighting for this and the work of feminists. The fact that this has come to light has been in the works and in, and in struggling uh, Aboriginal women struggling with this for over 20 years. So I think that has to be acknowledged. The achievement to get the inquiry is uh, the achievement of women, in particular Indigenous women. Having said that, there are some 
you know, worries uh, that we have. There has been criticism in the media, but what media rarely picks up on is the feminist worries about the inquiry or the feminist criticism so far. For example, we can already see that there is too little focus on men who are the perpetrators of this violence. Actually, there's absolutely not, no focus on the men and no discussion on how to hold men accountable. Also, the inquiry has no authority or power to hold individual men or institutions accountable for their actions. And we also worry that there is a serious risk that what will happen is individual story after story of the conditions of Aboriginal women's lives will be on public display. So the whole process ends up being a process in which her life is scrutinized and pathologized rather than looking at the role of institutional racism and sexism and violence, including but not only the violence that chief and band council men perpetuate, police, johns, pimps, battering husbands, all the range of men who've been attacking these women. We're worried that the scrutiny of these men, the individual men and the institutions, will not happen in this inquiry. And we know from Indigenous feminists that they're saying that the AFN does not represent Indigenous women's concerns. Indigenous women need to be speaking in their own voices, in particular Indigenous feminists, and they need to be able to say for themselves what they analyze the problems and solutions are. We're not sure that's going to happen either. And really, the Commission can make recommendations, but they cannot compel systematic changes or they can't compel individuals to do anything as well. So, you know, merely making recommendations rather than looking at systemic changes and being able to demand that, uh, we, we see it as a weakness of the inquiry. You've done anti-violence work for a long time now. And so you know, you know firsthand how women of color are specifically impacted under patriarchy. I wonder if you can talk about that a little. What have you learned through doing frontline work um, and doing anti-violence work in general about how misogyny and racism connect to harm women of color specifically? So we know it as a collective of rape relief has been around for about 40, over 40 years now, um, working on violence against women. And so I know from my own experience, which has been about 19 years now, that any disadvantage of race and class position further intensifies the already severe gender disadvantage of women. So it's worse for women of color. It's worse for women who are poor. And if you're Indigenous and poor, we know it's even worse. So what we see is that all men will attack women who they see as below them in the race hierarchy or in this in the same level. So what I'm saying is because of racism, we do have a hierarchy and white men are on top and women of color and Indigenous peoples are on the bottom. So men will attack within their own race and down. And similarly, they will attack women in, within their own class position and down. Now, these are generalizations that we've noticed over the years. Obviously, there's are exceptions. Um, but what that tells us is they use the race and class hierarchy to their advantage. They know that we live in a racist and sexist society, and men will use that to their advantage. Uh, men will use the fact that women will face racism from police, from the criminal justice system, and all other state systems to attack them. They know that Indigenous women will not get a response from the police, likely. 
and add to the mix a poor Indigenous woman or a prostituted woman, and the odds are even higher that she'll get any kind of response from police. So men will use that to their advantage. White men will say racist things as part of their attack to women of colour and Indigenous women. I've heard what men say to women in that, and it's awful, and it's used as part of the attack, and used as part of the degradation and part of the violence. Uh, but mostly it's more insidious than that. They kind of know that the institutions in criminal justice system, immigration, uh, welfare system, kind of are all stacked up against women in general, and then add another barriers such as race or class, and they kind of know that the systems are against women, and they will they will use that to their advantage. You know, I had one woman tell me, like, that the partner said, go ahead and call the police. Who do you think they're going to believe, you or me? You know, he's a white guy, she's a woman of color, and he knew. He knew what the score was. So that's one level for sure. But also as women of color, color, we also have to face accusations of being a traitor to our people, to our race, if we call out men on their sexism. So men will use their the experience of racism, you know, that they experience racism from the state as a way to guilt women of color and indigenous women to not use the state, not to call the police. They will accuse her of using a racist system against him and call her a traitor. And men, so men will exploit women's solidarity with them on race to excuse his sexist violence. And a lot of women already know, women of color and Indigenous women know, that more men of color and Indigenous men are in prison. And it's not necessarily because, I mean, well, actually we know it's not because they do more crime. It's because the system is stacked up against them. So they will often not want to use the police or, you know, activate any part of the system because they already know that uh, he likely won't be getting arrested because he hit her. He'll more likely be getting arrested because of that he's a brown man or he's an Indigenous man. And, you know, we're talking about a a real low number of women who actually want to use the state in the first place. That's the example I'm using because it's we get calls from both battered women and sexually assaulted women, and, and often battered women are using the police a little bit more. So that's the example. And I, I base myself the work I do out of the transition house. I mean, the other thing is, the reason I founded the South Asian Women Against Male Violence was for a few reasons. One is because I wanted to hold the men in my own community accountable for the, the violence that they perpetuate or that they allow to happen by their silence. And I wanted also to be a voice against the racist backlash on the South Asian community. I could see that the media was covering this as we were backward. There was something inherently wrong with South Asian men. And I did not want that to go on, not in my name, not as a feminist. And I also wanted to be out front as a South Asian woman, vocal and fighting and resisting, to be a model for other South Asian women that this is how you fight back. Because what violence against women does to to all women is tell you that you are to retreat back into the domestic pharaoh, back to your one-down position. And I wanted to form a group that could actively resist that while holding South Asian men accountable, but also not letting racist stereotypes be perpetuated because there was a spat of... uh, attacks in the South Asian community in like 2007 and 2008 when I organized the group. Uh, I think there was three really high profile cases. One woman was burned to death. 
Uh, one woman was shot and she was blinded, and another woman was murdered in her home, all by their husbands. And so there was a real media frenzy, uh, and the South Asian community was under scrutiny and attack. And I wanted to to fight that as a feminist. You know, I I think also, like I've said before, women of color and Indigenous women are are, and I'd say working class women are constantly having to unfairly split their loyalties uh, in order to reveal his violence to her community or to the state if she wants to do do that. Uh, she's got to make a choice because she will be accused of turning her back on her on her people. I mean, as a feminist, I've been accused of being too white or duped by white feminists, by men in the South Asian community in particular, but not only. Uh, you know, my response is white women don't have a monopoly on the notions of justice, equality and freedom. So, so you know, but it's, it's a very, very uh, quick accusation that most women of color and indigenous women face. Mm-hmm. To what level are sexual assaults and other forms of male violence against women of color and working class women to ignored or not addressed effectively by the authorities in the courts. I mean, you've talked about this a bit, but I wonder if you can, you know, think about any um, any other cases or any other examples where these incidences are, you know, ignored or not taken seriously specifically because of racism, institutionalized racism. Mm-hmm. Well, for, first I want to say that in terms of sexual assault, you know, there's been lots of statistics on the level in terms of the complete ignoring of, of sexual assaults that actually happen within the criminal justice system. Uh, the criminology professor, Holly Johnson, uh, did some research and she estimated 460,000 sexual assaults occur every year. And yet the legal data reveal only 15,000 roughly our formal complaints are made to the police. And of these 15,000, only 2,824 cases are prosecuted in the court with just half over half of those resulting in guilty verdicts. The end result is a conviction to crime ratio of 0.3%. So to put it in kind of simpler terms, 997 assailants walk free of every 1,000. So we're talking about a sexual assault criminal conviction rate that is abysmally low in general for any woman. And I make that case because as a woman of color, I think it's important that we understand that male violence against women is sort of the great equalizer in terms of all women experience male violence. There is no culture or no a community that doesn't experience it. And so I always want to be able to say, yes, these, there are some things that are unique to women of color and Aboriginal women, but what's similar to us and where we have such solidarity is that women of every community experience male violence. So nobody's getting a good criminal justice response. That's my first, that's my first argument. I think, I mean, I've already used Cindy Gladue and his um, Bradley Barton the murderer of Cindy Gladue. I mean, I do think this was a particularly horrific example of how Indigenous women are treated. Um, The police failed to take her death seriously from the beginning. And then reading uh, some of the court documents and how they talked about her 
as a prostituted Aboriginal woman, as if that made what he did to her okay, as if he bought the right to hurt her in the way that he did murder her uh, in the way that he did. And that was somehow consensual and it was a mistake that he just carried too far. I mean, this was a profoundly uh, important case and it, we, it only ever got to light because, again, Indigenous women fought back and were completely on the streets when the decision, when he was uh, found not guilty. You know, the arguments made that she consented to this horrific violence because she was a prostituted woman. And they kept saying, I think they said she was an Indigenous or Native girl or Native woman 26 times and referred to her as a prostitute between 25 and 26 times. Uh, so they were implying all sorts of things. But what they were, they implied the most was that she somehow consented to this violence and that he wasn't guilty of the horrible racism, racism and sexism that he perpetrated against her, misogyny. Um, so, but I also think the whole criminal justice system was brought to light, and it really revealed the racist and sexist bias within the criminal justice system. So that, to me, is the, the most stark example recently. I mean, there is more, but uh, that one, I rank it pretty highly. Um, I do think that male violence against women is not addressed effectively by the state or the police. Uh, most women don't even want to use the police because they know what they'll be treated horribly and not believed or accused of lying. I mean, the Gomeshi trial, unfortunately, reinforced all those beliefs. So t sends the message for all women uh, not to even bother engaging. And uh, I think the Gladue case, the good thing about the, uh, the case is that it is uh, under appeal and we're hoping for a better decision. We've seen a, a surge in anti-racist activism in the U.S. and I think in Canada as well, not to the same extent, but, you know, Black Lives Matter, for example, has brought conversations about racist police violence to the forefront. I wonder if you've seen a similar surge in feminist activism. You know, do you think that misogyny and violence against women has been able to galvanize people in the same way that racism has um, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say that, you know, racism is somehow taken more seriously than misogyny because racism is still rampant everywhere. Mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I wonder what your perspective is on in terms of how progressives and the left and liberals, you know, take on or address uh, racism versus how they address misogyny and violence against women? Well, my experience of, I would say, liberals is that they do take racism more seriously than they do misogyny. I, and I know I'm going to probably catch some heat for that, but that is my experience. And, you know, bring, being brown and being a woman, it's hard to kind of tear the two apart. They're both parts of who I am. Um, but I think among liberals um, and white liberal men, there's something, I don't know why that, why that is, that they think they can galvanize themselves towards fighting racism and not um, sexism in the same way. But, you know, I think that the women's movement has got the most potential to have a resurgence. I think we're sort of in one right now. 
um, you know, it's it's hard to harness the momentum and work as a united force. You know, at least to me, it seems harder with so many cuts to women's groups over the last 15 years. And the material conditions of women's lives are much harder. Uh, there's more entrenched poverty. Uh, welfare is at an abysmally low rate. At some point, I mean, it was never good, but you, I hear you could you could live on welfare at one point. Absolutely not true now. Um, the loss of most social safety nets has made it harder for women to have time for activism. And many women now have two or three jobs to make ends meet. So, you know, and there's no housing to speak of. So these things to me have an effect on how women can participate in fighting male supremacy. But having said that, I think in terms of a surge of feminism activism, if we look over the course of five or six years, there's been quite a surge since Gomeshi in terms of public discussion of male violence against women. Um, and even before Gameshi, there was been raped, never reported, yes, all women, um, the campus activism against sexual assaults, the fight back, you know, all of the world against rape, the horrific rape in, of the woman in India, um, the uprisings in Poland around abortion, the Brazilian women protesting the rape of a young girl, so I think that there is a lot of feminist activism right now. And I do think the public discussion has been phenomenal. But in terms of new groups forming and being active, other than on social media, it's a little harder to gauge. Certainly after Trump and the Women's March, I mean, I think that was a great start. And we're in a really high kind of high activism in terms of discussion about violence against women. So I think all those things are indicative of the gains of the women's movement. They've paved the way for these discussions. But, you know, we have a long way to go still. I don't think we can directly kind of relate Black Lives Matter or compare them completely. They're not similar. But even in Black Lives Matter, I mean, if you look at their set of guiding principles, they do say that they're fighting misogyny. Um, and I, be I believe the local Black Lives Matter is led by mostly women. And even with, within them, I think the Say Her Name uh, was a specific response to the police violence against black women. And obviously some uh, women didn't think that that issue was given much weight. So that was a response to that. So I think, I think we're doing pretty well when it comes to accepting feminism and uh, being active. How to harness that as a kind of unified movement is, you know, a million dollar question, I guess. So do you believe, do you believe the left are addressing misogyny and specifically male violence effectively in their activism? And do you believe they should be? Well, yes, I think they should be. Um, but for I keep going, though, you know, the left is a very broad term and I'm, I'm bound to offend someone from the left. So these are generalizations that I make. Um, or I'm trying to be specific, actually, because I think generalizations may prove to be a problem. Uh, but I'll pick some very specific examples of what I see as indicative of some general inclinations in the broader left. Um, I think kind of we've been two steps forward and two steps back. Um, there's been, you know, some movement forward and then something happens and I think, OK, we're exactly where we were before. And I can sort of say that now after 19 years. So um, one example that was fairly recent is uh, Chris Hedges was invited by the Simon Fraser University. Chris Hedges, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, um, a writer and a reporter. And so he was supposed to be speaking at the State of Extraction conference. And he decided to 
uh, talk about the relationship between resource extraction and prostitution. And his speak was cancelled when organizers learned that he would speak on this relationship. And it was only when feminists like the Asian Women's Coalition Against Prostitution and Rape Relief and others complained that he was put back on the key as a keynote. And then they tried to act like they never cut him out. I mean, you may not think of SFU as the left, but I'm sure these particular professors who were putting it on consider themselves as part of the broader left. So the reaction was harsh uh, when Chris did finally speak. He was spoke from an abolitionist position. He made an analogy between resource extraction and what happens to the women who have to um, be part of the man camps and how prostitution can proliferate when we're looking at uh, resource extraction. And he was, you know, criticized for his position on this, on quote unquote, sex trade work. And SFU quickly distanced themselves from his views. They put it on the website that they don't particularly agree with him. And, you know, Chris was following, Chris Hedges was following feminist leadership on the issue of prostitution being male violence against women. And he was punished for it. You know, they quickly got, SFU quickly got another professor who was supposed to speak on something else completely. And he told the audience that. They asked him to change his speak and to talk about a pro-sex work position. So this reaction, I would say, is common on the left, of the left, when it comes to male violence against women. It's a refusal to apply their own class analysis to women as a class being oppressed and a failure to listen to feminist leaders who, after all, are the experts. Uh, so I think in that way, in particular about prostitution, not much has changed. And another example was when Julian Assange was facing sexual assault allegations. Um, I think the men of the left ran out to defend him and to characterize this as an attack on his work. It's his work with WikiLeaks and a way of the state trying to punish him for that work. They completely dismissed the notion that he may also have committed these sexual assaults and still done good work with WikiLeaks. Uh, I think Michael Moore came out and supported him, demanding he's innocent before proven guilty. But, you know, Michael Moore was criticized by feminists for not considering that the woman also deserved a fair hearing. And he corrected himself. So I have to give him credit for doing that. But I think, again, this is a good example of how the left, in general, respond. State violence is more important. How could, how could you have this accusation on Assange? You know, his claims are legitimated, and she's accused of ruining the left or splitting the movement by her frivolous claims of sexist violence. So, you know, there are examples to me of a lot of the problems still in, in the left that we have to deal with, which is... Male violence against women is still considered a distraction rather than a fundamental oppression that, you know, the left has, has to deal with. And certainly uh, the attitude of prostitution being a liberatory choice for women, um, this is also embraced by many parts of the left. And, you know, it's the failure of those on the left that see this pro-sex industry and pro-pimp industry as failing to see it as male violence against women and not addressing misogyny. And, you know, since that's what prostitution is, is violence against women, I think this is another really good example of uh, what's what still needs to be done in the left. Mm -hmm. And 
of late it's become popular on the left and you know even among a lot of young female activists and young women who would probably call themselves feminist to discuss um, something called carceral feminism. So the argument, you know, the argument that men of color are incarcerated at really high rates and women of color too, um, you know, that it's true. That is, that's a reality. But this argument is used against feminists mm-hmm. to say that feminists who want men held to account for their violence, for buying sex, for sexual assault, mm-hmm. etc., through the court system, um, the criminal justice system, and by the police are carceral or, you know, white feminists or are somehow racist or not intersectional. How do you respond to these kinds of accusations and arguments? Well, I really object to this idea that it's uh, feminists who are, you know, promoting a prison industrial complex. Um, I think it's just another way to attack feminism. I really object to this idea of white feminism. I've been working as a radical feminist for over 20 years. And this notion of races, not only my history of activism, but the women who've become before me. Uh, I think it's also, it's just an easy and lazy accusation. There have been women of color early on in this movement. And I think when we give this accusation weight, we're doing the work of white men, which is to undermine feminism. Uh, now, for this accusation as feminists being responsible for the law and order agenda, while this has been ruminating for many, many years, I think as long as I've been an activist, this has been one of the accusations of the left. And I guess I want to say, I mean, I there's many, many uh, organizations of the left and women of the left that I uh, profoundly respect. So I think when we're generalizing like this, um, you know, we have to be be careful because there are good women and men working and are pro-feminists. So having said that, this particular accusation does come from a portion and a segment of the left. And we as feminists have been very careful in our call for holding men accountable that we try not to reinforce every other power of the state. You know, we're mostly aware of this. Uh, but first of all, so few men are jailed on male violence against women. Uh, that's the first point. But we've never argued for a law and order agenda, like fighting for longer jail sentences, anything like that. We demanded only that men are forced to face a judge, be judged and held accountable for his actions. This may not always mean incarceration. And, you know, I think feminists above any, or the feminist movement, the women's movement above any other movement have considered many different ways and alternatives to the criminal justice system. For example, transition houses. It is an alternative to the state. Women created them. Feminists created them. And we created them because, first of all, women aren't using the police in droves. So that's the first thing. And secondly, when they come to transition houses, they don't have to. They don't have to engage the state if they don't want to, and most women don't. So that was the brilliance of the women's movement that created transition houses. But also, we were uh, thinking all the time about what to do other than using the state. Again, because most women didn't want to. Uh, So we would have postering campaigns. We would have confrontations that we did ourselves with groups of women. I mean, feminists have thought a lot about alternatives to jail. We have done our share of dreaming alternatives to jail. Um, So, you know, if the left have a better idea, let's hear it. 
because we've been coming up with alternatives to uh, the state from since the women's movement has started. And finally, do you think we can effectively combat racism without simultaneously addressing patriarchy and capitalism and vice versa? Do you think we can effectively address patriarchy without also at the same time dealing with white supremacy, imperialism and capitalism? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think any feminist uh, has to be fighting white supremacy and capitalism. Uh, You know, I understand that there are groups that may choose to focus on one of these struggles more than the other. And I respect that. Uh, I need experts on the front lines and all the different alliances that we can have, people who are defending the land, fighting capitalism and imperialism. That's all crucial. Uh, But ideally, I think the best chance we have to win is to integrate a race, class and gender analysis in our movement. And, you know, where I stand, where I chose to stand is with women and in particular uh, working on anti-violence or working about male violence against women because so many women experience it. But I integrate a race and class analysis with that. And it doesn't absolve me from fighting on those fronts. You know, I recall a young group of women of color activists. They were like between the ages of like 12 and 16 uh, at a conference I went to in Chicago. And they were describing, describing race, class and gender as fundamental forces to fight from. And they kind of saw these as three strands. And what they said is when the strands are braided, we have a whole different entity and that braid is stronger than any one strand. And that always kind of stuck with me as a visual, um, partly because I'm South Asian and Indian women often have long hair and braids are pretty, pretty uh, nostalgic thing for me. Um, But also it's just true that if we combine the analysis and combined our forces, we're much more likely to win. Um, You know, I think we need to see what unifies us and build a strong movement based on our multiple strands, you know, woven together to build a a really strong force against male supremacy, white supremacy and capitalism. So, you know, in my view, to be a feminist, you have to be fighting on all three fronts, uh, race, class and gender. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Um, It's been really interesting and inspiring (laughs) thank you for having me it's been i i feel like i've really reached the you know epiphany of feminism when you when i get to be interviewed by megan murphy so thank you so much you just heard an interview with daisy clur a collective member at vancouver rape relief and women's shelter a transition house for battered women and their children and canada's first rape crisis line Daisy is the founder of South Asian Women Against Male Violence and has worked at Vancouver Rape Relief for over 18 years. That is all the time we have for today. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com, tweet at us at feministcurrent, or send us an email at info at feministcurrent.com. We are hosted by Libsyn, and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current podcast anywhere you like to listen. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. Show the world radical feminism is worth listening to. Feminist Current is a syndicated show produced and edited by myself, 
Megan Murphy, out of Vancouver, BC. If your station would like to air Feminist Current, you can find episodes at audioport.org. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button.